Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. It's only Tuesday, and it's already been a very eventful week. On one hand, you had President Biden has given back-to-back speeches on democracy and the threat Trump poses, which I really think should remove many of the doubts that people had that he wasn't up for this election, that he doesn't understand the stakes, that he wasn't going to bring the fight to Donald Trump. These were two very strong speeches, one in Pennsylvania, close to Valley Forge, and the other at the AME Church in Charleston. And he was quite adamant that this is really about what kind of system we want to have. Do we want to have someone who thinks he's a king? Do we want to have someone who doesn't respect the choices of the American voters? Someone who said he wants to use the military against peaceful protests. Someone who wants to use the Justice Department to punish his enemies. Someone who wants to execute the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Biden was very strong. He sounded good. He looked good, frankly. Maybe he needs to go to St. Croix more often. Um, But he looked great. He sounded great. And he certainly made his case. And it was a good way, I think, to start off the election year for him. Meanwhile, in the D.C. Circuit case, um, or the D.C. Circuit, rather, the decision by Judge Chutkin that said Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution went up on appeal. This was what they called a hot bench, meaning that the three-person panel was very active in questioning the lawyers, and in particular, Trump's lawyers. And to put it mildly, it did not go down well with him, their assertion that Donald Trump or any president can do whatever he wants, commit any crime in office, um, so long as he is acting within his office and never be held responsible for it. Uh, Judge Florence Pan, who gave, um, I think, the best um, grilling we've heard from any judge um, in the Trump cases, broke it down. And she asked Trump's lawyer, what about if he used the SEAL 6 forces to go assassinate an opponent? What if he sold secrets to a foreign government? What if he did all sorts of crimes? He never goes to jail for those? He can never be prosecuted for those? And the judge says, well, he would need to be um, convicted in a proceeding in the uh, House and then in the Senate. He would need to be impeached first. But, you know, he really shouldn't be convicted for any of those things. That's a startling admission. That is a shocking admission. Number one, that he thinks that an impeachment has to be a precondition for trial. You'll remember that Richard Dixon was not um, impeached um, and removed, um, but he did have the threat of prosecution hanging over him. And secondly, this notion that he can go on a 
crime spree in office and there's no recourse ever against him? We've gotten used to the notion that presidents can't be prosecuted while they're in office, but this suggests they can never be prosecuted, ever. And that's, of course, contrary to everything we've come to believe, everything we know about the constitutional system. It would have made the pardon of Richard Nixon unnecessary. It would have, of course, um, not um, been a talking point in Trump's own second impeachment when his own lawyer stood up there and said, well, he's not president anymore, so you can't impeach him, but there's always criminal prosecution. What was he saying if there's no prosecution ever against Donald Trump? So this was a perfect contrast, I think, between what Trump stands for and what Biden stands for. On one hand, you have a normal president who is part of a political party that wants to make life better, that has proposals, that wants to govern, and who is defending democracy in very, very strong terms. And on the other hand, you have a guy saying he should be able to murder people and betray the country without any consequences if he gets to be president again. Now, if that doesn't scare people off from voting for him for a second term, I don't know what will. And I think we all have to think twice and three times and four times before we think about letting him anywhere near the Oval Office once again. So a lot to think about. Those of you who read me at the Washington Post or watch me on MSNBC know that I write a lot about the law and I talk a lot about the law. And I can't do it all on my own research, although I read opinions still and talk to a lot of lawyers. One of the best sources of information uh, is a group called the Brennan Center. They are housed at NYU. And they are a bunch of very smart lawyers, and they do several things. One thing they do is do research on crime, on bail reform. They also put out incredibly helpful analysis of major legal issues. And they also make proposals to improve our democracy. It's really a wealth of material for journalists, for ordinary people, um, for lawmakers, And the head of that is a fellow by the name of Michael Waldman, who I've known for many years. Um, He served in the Carter administration, excuse me, the Clinton administration, don't want to date him. Um, And he has, um, he's an author and he runs uh, now the Brennan Center. So I couldn't be more delighted to have him on the show. Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. Oh, it is a pleasure. Um, I must confess to my readers at the Washington Post that we often email or exchange information and your little worker bees um, at the Brennan Center who do all kinds of phenomenal research are uh, a a constant companion as I write about everything from, I think, uh, crime to uh, constitutional issues. So you have a very good group of people there. Well, I will will pass that on and we're looking forward to a busy year. (laughs) I can only imagine. Let me go back to something that you participated in earlier in the Biden administration, which was the Supreme Court Commission. This was a group of scholars who the president convened, uh, if you will, from the right and the left to think about reforms for the Supreme Court. Ultimately, 
there was no single proposal, although it was a fascinating report that came out. Um, and I want to go back to that for um, a couple reasons. One, the court has gotten so much worse since then. Um, and two, I wonder if public opinion has moved. What, if anything, was a major issue of reform that got wide approval? In other words, could you get approval from most people on an 18-year term? Could you get approval for most people on a ethics return, uh, ethics reform? What could you agree on? Uh, it, it was fascinating and an important moment. Um, it, it, as you know, these commissions are often created to deflect pressure to act. And in a sense, that is, I think, how this started, because during the 2020 campaign, when he was campaigning, President Biden did not want to go all the way with some of the changes that some of his more ardent supporters were pushing, like expanding the court. It was a commission of people from left and right. We were, um, you know, these commissions often don't do very much. <laughs> and we were actually instructed at the outset not to reach conclusions. That was actually in the, wow. executive, in the executive order. So as I always say, this was a government agency, you know, that worked as intended. But um, it was actually very interesting. I mean, it was interesting in the sense that uh, the, there was a recognition that the Supreme Court had something wrong with it that it's a governmental institution, not a religious body, not a bunch of wizards, even though they wear robes, but a governmental institution that can have problems, that can have corruption, that can appropriately be the subject of discussion and of reform. Um, and what was specifically interesting, I think you, you, you pointed at it, um, we heard testimony, even though we were told, don't reach conclusions, we heard testimony from dozens of witnesses from left and right, public testimony, and they disagreed on all different kinds of stuff. Some were for court expansion, others were against it. Some were for changing jurisdiction, others were against it. But over and over again, they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. Um, it, it, the idea of an 18-year term for Supreme Court justices, it turns out, is widely popular among uh, Democrats and Republicans and independents. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is, to me, it's rooted in a kind of a very basic concept of accountability of power, that nobody should have too much public power for too long. Um, in a sense, George Washington taught us that when he stepped down after two terms. Uh, and it is something that can be done by constitutional amendment. But I think also, and we at the Brennan Center believe it can be done in a variety of ways by statute, too. And what's interesting is it is very popular. Uh, po polls that we've conducted, but also other public polls too, show that it's very popular with Republicans as well as independents and Democrats. Um, now, now I don't, I'm not under the illusion that it'll be a giant, you know, group hug <laughs> if it starts to move. But I think it's an idea whose time has come, although, uh, when exactly it will come, of course, you know, will depend on a lot. Well, I sincerely doubt that the framers, um, first of all, envisioned that people would be living into their 90s. So the notion that somebody from um, 50 years prior would still be on the court making rulings, I think, would have shocked um, the framers, frankly. And, of course, the reason for lifetime tenure was to 
provide some political independence, um, hopefully that they shouldn't be partisans. But in fact, it's done the opposite. Having a lifetime tenure has given presidents a sense that, oh, I can leave my mark on history for decades. Um, and therefore, they, number one, choose younger people. So term limits, let's hear it for middle-aged people, would increase the age, perhaps, of people nominated and hence the experience level. And secondly, it would keep people remotely in touch with the society in which they're uh, making decisions. What is the argument that you have um, that would get past the seeming um, provision or prohibition in the Constitution that uh, justices can only be removed um, if they are, in essence, um, not acting in in good behavior um, by impeachment. What, what's the best argument you have for how you could get around that? Yeah, so it doesn't say they'll be there for life. It says that they're there on good behavior. And there is in the federal judicial system, and this has been upheld by courts all the time, the ability to change the rules, excuse me, change the function of what a judge does at a certain point. It's called, uh, for example, being a senior judge. Um, you could say, if you did this by statute, you could say, well, after 18 years, their role changes and they become a senior justice and they maybe still uh, are part of deciding what cases get to get chosen, but they don't get to vote um, or other things. There are all kinds of ways, you know, Justice Alito uh, recently said, oh, you know, the, the Congress has no role in regulating the Supreme Court. And that's just nonsense. All its jurisdiction is regulated by the Supreme Court. Their entire appellate jurisdiction is controlled by Congress. Right. And the number of justices and everything else, it's appropriately something for legislation when, you know, you want to make sure. I think it is very important that whatever reforms there might be, maintain the independence of the court, try to drain some of the toxicity and partisanship uh, from the nomination process. One, one thing that we think would be a good idea to go along with the term limits is is a the the idea that a president gets to make an appointment every two years, um, and again it would sort of regularize things. Uh, it would mean that not every nomination was the you know uh, a clash of civilizations level uh, fight. Hopefully, um, but it certainly couldn't make things it couldn't get worse than it currently is, um, and uh, th there's we do want to make sure that the judges have independence, but uh, you, therefore you don't want them to have their salaries cut. You don't want to have them be kicked out just on a whim. But having a term limit is how it's done in every constitutional court of every other country that's a democracy. And and uh, all, 49 of the 50 state Supreme Courts have either a term limit or an age requirement. So it's, it's really not some um, novel idea. It's just this is one of those things where the Constitution is 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 old and and revered, but it also was early on in the development of some of these institutions. And I have a great job that they could perform as a senior justice. They could oversee ethics complaints <laughs> and ethics right. reforms. Exactly what a great job right. for them! I I would like Clarence Thomas to be doing that. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. On a boat. Yes, I'm. You know. I'm sure he'll be off uh, fishing someplace. If
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. So ethics reform has obviously gotten to be much more um, of a public issue because of the behavior, the egregious behavior of um, Justice um, Thomas, and because I think of the work of um, Senator Whitehouse, who has shown the role of dark money, the role um, that certain shadowy groups play in setting up cases and in providing uh, amici brief. What were the major conclusions that the group reached um, on ethics reform? The group didn't reach such firm conclusions on that, but I think since the since the commission met, actually, the need for ethics reform has become more visible, um, and support for ethics reform is very high in the polls, and public trust in the court simultaneously has collapsed to the lowest yes. level ever recorded in polls. Some of that was rulings like the Dobbs case that people, many people regard as extreme. But some of it also is the is the scandals. Uh, you know, I think ethics is a kind of a kind of a, a, a polite word for some of what we're seeing. I mean, corruption. Uh, it's corruption. corruption. I, the, in particular, the Harlan Crow situation with Clarence Thomas, in the sense that we now know that this guy. Uh, Harlan Crow, who's a you know very politically active conservative billionaire, has been subsidizing the lifestyle of a Supreme Court justice for years secretly. Yes. You know, Thomas reported this at first, and then the Los Angeles Times in 2002 wrote a story about it. So he his solution was to no longer re- disclose it. And you know, it's not just the fishing trips or the 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 jet plane rides that cost $500,000 or the other things that ProPublica, which, by the way, should get a Pulitzer, in my view, um, disclosed in their their series on this. But Crow, and this was most striking to me, Crow purchased Clarence Thomas's mother's house with her living in it and did renovations and also paid for the education of Thomas's surrogate son. And if you think about it, if this was some state legislature somewhere, if this was Albany or Springfield, Illinois or whatever, and, you know, the local, the local rich guy was paying for the lifestyle of the, of the state senator, we would all go, oh, well, you know, it's the oldest story in the book. That's corruption. We, we know what that means. Yes. And that's what this was. And so um, there, it, we, it was a way of learning that the rules were very porous, that there was no need for disclosure that of, with meaningful teeth, that recusal, meaning when the judges step aside from a case, um, that they don't have to, they don't have to do it if they don't want to, the justices, uh, or they don't have to say why they don't do it, um, which was noteworthy in, in the case of Thomas, because of course his wife, Ginny Thomas, has been was so involved in some of the activities that are the subject of cases before the court on on January around January sixth and the Trump uh, effort to overturn the election, and uh, you know until quite recently the Supreme Court was the only court in the country with no ethics code at all. Right. Um, bowing to some 
public demand. And, and the court issued a, a statement saying that it was only doing this because it wanted to, quote, clear up a misunderstanding yes. that people had about their ethics. They did a few months ago create a code of conduct. Uh, it, it, they went from having no code of conduct to having a very weak code of conduct. It has still nobody outside the, the nine justices, including, as you suggest, former justices, a great idea, um, or other judges or whatever, um, retired justices, to sort of even give advice, yes. serve as an advisory body or a policing body. And you need somebody, nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. That's kind of a basic, you know, that was the fundamental Concept. principle of the rule of law on which our uh, Constitution is based. What's also the case is that there's no process for making a complaint. Um, there's no um, firm guidelines um, for the level of specificity about um, disclosure, about the kinds of familial relationships. So we recently had a cert petition that went up to the court um, on this immunity issue, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. There was no evidence I could see from the denial of cert that Justice Thomas recused himself. So we assume he's going to sit there and pass judgment on facts and on law when his wife was a participant in the action. That That's mind-blowing. Any other judge would be drummed out for doing this. And, and you know, he already did it once. Um, if you recall, there was one case uh, where the January 6th committee was trying to get documents from the yes. uh, National Archives that turned out to be quite significant in showing Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, and others and their involvement. Um, and it was a ruling by the Supreme Court that said, no, there's no executive privilege. The former president cannot claim executive privilege from the National Archives. It was an eight-to-one vote. The one vote was Clarence Thomas. He never mentioned that among the documents were messages from his own wife. Yeah, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. And it's, you know, look, I think that there are a lot of – it's quite unusual. This is not how all the justices behave all the time. Right. Um, and one has to assume that there was pressure inside the court. On the one hand, Roberts seemed to have wanted unanimity, but one can assume that some of the other justices were pushing for more action than, than even happened. Other federal judges all have to abide by this stuff at the lower level of the courts. And, and I don't, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I know quite a few federal judges. I actually like going to dinner with them because you, on the one hand, they're not expecting you to pay for them, and they're cheap. <laughs> they, don't yes. any, they don't have any money. So it's actually a very affordable opportunity to have a nice meal. Um, there you go. They're very fastidious about yep. following the rules. It's just the nature of who becomes a judge. And so I think that there is an understanding that the court – look, I did a book, uh, as you know, on, on the history of the Supreme Court up until this point. And one of the things that was really striking was the part of the Constitution that deals with the, the federal courts is only one-tenth the length of – the parts dealing with the Congress and the president, who who the founders thought were going to be the key decision makers in the government. The Supreme Court has grown to have the power that it has only because we have given it that power, because we have found it useful to have to to even sometimes pretend that we have this body that is above politics. Um, it, it, but it doesn't have the power 
it can squander its credibility and therefore squander its power. And I think they're in grave danger of doing that. And part of the answer, I think, is, is reform. So what do we do in the meantime? Um, in a perfect world, you'd say Justice Thomas has misbehaved and you'd impeach him and remove him, but we don't live in that world. Um, should there be a public movement um, or some kind of campaign in favor of term limits? What would you prescriptively um, suggest for people who say, darn right, we need to shape up the Supreme Court because it's running out of credibility and integrity? So I do look. I do think that term limits should become part of the the the, uh, the short list of items that people who care about saving our democracy say they're for, um, and that as I say, it's very popular. But you know, voters need to know there's a chance of something like this happening. There's legislation that got introduced in the House and in the Senate. Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse. Uh, in the Senate introduced it and Hank Johnson in the House. Unfortunately, right now, it's not bipartisan, even though public support is bipartisan. And I think, of course, that, you know, for all kinds of reasons, may pose a very significant obstacle. Uh, but uh, I think there should be a public movement. The Brennan Center has been pushing it, but it's, you know, it's the beginning of this. And again, what's striking is in contrast to term limits and ethics reform are have a broad public support, and I would even argue consensus. There's some other ideas that people have that are much more controversial, like expanding the court, um, uh, you know, which is derided as court packing. And uh, that is seen very differently, I think, by the public, for example. And these are actually ideas that are uh, term limits and ethics reform are, are, are much more mainstream than people realize, if you want to think of it that way. We assume everything's right. edgy, but this is actually really like a – there's not that many consensus items quite as clear as this. But uh, but I think that, you know, candidates need to be talking about this. The public needs to be asking about it. And I'll say that conservatives over many years appropriately made the Supreme Court an issue. Yes. It was always – every Supreme Court, every candidate for office on the Republican side had to have their – thing they said about the courts and what, what they shouldn't do or who, what kind of justices they would want on the court or whatever. And uh, Democrats and progressives were mostly silent and, and lost the muscle memory. And, you know, one of the bottom line points is, to me at least, this isn't transgressive to talk about the Supreme Court. It's, it's actually just a branch of government and it's appropriate for all of us to be yelling about it. Exactly. And I think what's significant in the post-Dobbs world, and this is the irony of ironies, um, not only are Democrats much more interested in the court, but voters who care about the court are more likely to be Democrats. And um, it seems to have worked, at least in 2022 and 2023, um, to motivate Democrats to get them to the polls and perhaps to um, change some outcomes like the Virginia legislature, which um, was uh, a clean sweep, frankly, for the Democrats in a post-Dobbs world. So um, it's a indication that the court matters and uh, maybe the roles will be reversed going forward. segue into, of course, the never-ending constitutional seminar known as Donald Trump. Um, I fear that 
you know, for decades after he's finally, finally gone from the scene, every thesis for a PhD, every law class is going to be built on him and all of the horror that has been revealed. Um, but for purposes of our conversation, since we're not teaching a multi-day course, although that would be fun. Um, there will be people who major in Trump studies. Yes. Oh, I Just absolutely. the same way there are people who, you know, civil war concentrate studies. on yes. civil war studies. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, it, it, frankly, the uh, analogy is a little too close. Um, <laughs> but of the four pending criminal cases, we have a two in um, – state court and two in federal court. I want to focus on the big one, on the one that is Jack Smith's federal case. He got a federal grand jury to indict Trump on four counts um, for events leading up to and on January 4th, uh, January 6th. And those four counts um, have some pretty strong legal arguments in their favor. And frankly, in the last month or so, I have a piece that'll be out on Thursday. The facts have gotten to be even stronger than we imagined with some some revelations. However, Donald Trump doesn't want a trial and he doesn't want a trial before the election. So he is making every argument he can think of, whether it's um, immunity, whether it's double jeopardy, all these kind of arguments to avoid going to trial. And as we sit here chatting on Tuesday, there was an argument in the D.C. Circuit in which Donald Trump um, was appealing the decision by Judge Chutkin, who is the district court judge, that he does not have absolute immunity. And that was a fabulous and quite what they call a hot bench um, because the justices were in there arguing and making their case. What was your impression of the proceedings? And do you think it might change the public perception of what Donald Trump thinks about the presidency? You're exactly right. This is the case of all the cases. This is has been said, I think, accurately, the most important criminal trial in American history. Yes. The, the Lee Harvey Oswald trial not ever having happened, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and the indictment by Jack Smith in the federal court is tight and, uh, and focused and, of course, goes to the attempt to overthrow the Constitution, which took place, uh, you know, just three years ago. Um, and you're right that as bad as it was on January 6th, it looked a bit like a, a rally that got out of control. The more we learned, the more we learned from the January 6th committee, the more we learned from what seems to be getting piled up for the trial, this was a deadly serious conspiracy to overthrow the Constitution multifaceted. And so this trial matters enormously. Trump's main claim is, is that he's immune from prosecution because he was once president. And even just saying it out loud, I, I think kind of undercuts the seriousness of the argument. But it's a real constitutional claim in the following sense. It's, it's an easy case. It is a legally easy case. And I think very few legal scholars think Trump will win or should win. But the Supreme Court has never ruled on this before right. because no former president has ever been indicted before. And so 
to me, in some respects, the question is not what the ruling will be, but when. Time matters. And it, I hate to say it, but it does seem as though Attorney General Merrick Garland's slowness yes. in moving on this until he had a special prosecutor, until the January 6th committee made its criminal referrals, so that all these entirely predictable legal maneuverings would take place in the middle of the political season, that could that delay could turn out to be very consequential in American history. I could not agree more. Um, I think that was a I, major failing, and we're paying the price for it. Let me go to the issue of timing. Trump has made so far the argument that he's absolutely immune. And there was a fabulous exchange between um, Judge Florence Pan, um, who uh, recently, relatively recently appointed, uh, appointed to the D.C. court, and Trump's lawyers, in which she said, you mean the president could order a SEAL team to assassinate someone? You mean the president could sell pardons? You mean the president could have people assassinated? And the guy said, well, yeah. And that was, I think, the most revealing moment we've had that this guy thinks he's a dictator and would do so again. He, he could shoot people on Fifth Avenue and he would be not just nobody right. would care, but he would be immune. Right. I mean, it's, it's a legally preposterous, uh, preposterous argument, yeah. but everything takes time. And yes. even though this is very fast for federal courts, it's still slower than is needed. And so, for example, this court could have said, you know what, we really don't need to hear this case. Just send it up to the Supreme Court. They didn't. They said, oh, we'd like to chew on this one. Um, th they uh, did raise questions that one might assume the Supreme Court will ask as well, which is, well, wait a minute. We don't want presidents to be prosecuted willy-nilly for everything they did as president. There has to be some limitation. Right. And that that's right. And I, I, I used to work in a White House. I understand that concern. But there are ways to draw that line. And however you draw the line, trying to overthrow the Constitution is not actually part of the official job description of president. So presumably it will be said, well, but in this case, Trump is not right. um, covered by that. But, uh, but it takes time to parse all that out and write the opinion and you know, judges often li don't like to resist the chance to make a grand statement for the ages. And I just think the most important thing is that this get up to the Supreme Court as quickly as possible. I also think, although I know there's legal um, legal questions about this, Judge Chuckin uh, ordered a stay. She froze the proceedings at the trial level. And th that was a very responsible thing to do, although I actually don't think she had to do it, but she did it. But this court could say, among other things, go ahead. You don't have to freeze the, the proceedings. We're going to make a ruling, and you're going to be perhaps able to have your trial on March 4th. Right. Because of, uh, uh, anything that takes considerably longer really pushes it further into the year and raises more and more intense political problems. And then it would be Trump scrambling to get up to the Supreme Court, insisting that they put a stay back in place so the shoe would be on the other foot. Um, let's do a little bit of a lightning round on this. Any chance the Supreme Court would not take, would not grant cert? Assuming the trial, assuming the appeals court says at eh, no immunity, would they, would the Supreme Court deal with it just by denying cert? Um, 
they could. I don't think they would because I think that they would feel they need to make a statement on this topic um, in, a, in a clear way. Do you think the D.C. Circuit will also, in some alternative ruling, address the partial immunity defense so as to prevent this case from ping-ponging back and forth um, and trying to save some time? Do you think they will address that issue um, as well? I think they will try to streamline this so there's a clear yes or no, especially given how clear the law is on this. And if they, in the alternative rule, oh, and besides, even if there is some kind of immunity for Trump, he doesn't get one in this case, um, it would seem then that the Supreme Court would be almost compelled to at least address that in this single case or the single appeal rather than ruling on absolute immunity, going back down, new claim of partial immunity, going back up again, and then going back down. So that would seem to be quite important to get all those issues in one shot if we're going to keep this on track. This would be a case where the thing courts often do, including the Supreme Court, of kick the can down the road, you only decide things that you have to decide and so forth. That kind of normal stuff would be justice denied. The, the country voters, not just is this an important case because of the charges and the identity of the defendant, but to the extent that voters should have the information of whether he's been criminally convicted for this uh, before they make their decision. Trump is saying, oh, I'm a candidate, so I, you know, that's, that helps me. But in fact, it, it cuts both ways yeah. because this is something where voters do have a right to know the outcome of the, of the case. Separate and apart from this, we have um, the reintroduction of, or perhaps for the first time Americans are aware of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and that, of course, was put in after the Civil War to say that if you took up arms against the United States, you don't get to come back and serve in public office unless Congress by two-thirds allows you back in. And this was meant to keep the Jefferson Davises and the um, other folks um, out of public office. Well, Colorado Supreme Court holds a hearing, an evidentiary hearing with witnesses and documents and says, you know what, this guy participated in an insurrection. He's off the ballot. And meanwhile, in Maine, you have a secretary of state who as someone who's sworn to uphold the Constitution, looks at the language of Section 3, and she decides he shouldn't be on the ballot. That now is going up, at least on the Colorado case, to the Supreme Court. And I find this highly amusing because if you are really an originalist, if you are really a strict constructionist and every word means what it says and says what it means, what's the excuse for allowing him on the the uh, the ballot. So I guess the big parlor game in D.C. is how are they going to keep from reading the Constitution correctly? And what do you think the excuse they're going to come up with to leave them on the ballot? Well, and when you look at how the court, for example, has pulled out dictionaries to interpret the Second Amendment, 
uh, and its words. Uh, you're exactly right that this does, among many other things, call uh, call nonsense on on the project of originalism and textualism as the only appropriate and legitimate way to make decisions. Um, I, I think you know. I think it is striking that first of all, uh, when you look at the Colorado decision, it, it made a very strong case that he did in fact engage in an insurrection, which, for all the factual reasons we know, right. Um, and I also think it's hard. One of the possible exit ramps that they have, and I think it would be really terrible if what they it, it, that they ruled. Oh well, it wasn't an insurrection after all. There's an argument that the president is not covered because it's not mentioned in the in the paragraph, although many other places in the Constitution and in the 14th Amendment, I think, too, the presidency is described as an office of the United States. I think that where they are more likely to find an exit ramp that uh, doesn't absolve Trump um, is in saying, well, who makes the decision about whether there's been an insurrection um, and who's covered? In other words, I think he engaged in an insurrection and the Colorado Supreme Court thinks he's engaged in an insurrection. But there's this is called the question of whether it's self-executing. There is right. some historical evidence or precedent saying, well, no, some body of government like Congress needs to say this was an insurrection or who's covered. Others say, no, it's it's something that the courts can do. I think for something as big as this, Lawrence Tribe, for example, who's, who's no friend of Donald Trump, has said, yeah, of course he engaged in an insurrection, but Congress needs to declare there to have been an insurrection as a legal matter or maybe even a court ruling or prosecution, but, but, but we, the court will not want to have even well-intentioned election officials or other courts just sort of having contradictory rulings or, or you know, you saw the, the Missouri attorney general, uh, who's a Republican saying, well, you know, I think Black Lives Matter was an insurrection and Kamala Harris supported that. And so I'm going to keep her off the ballot. Um, the, the, in a sense, that is a, were they to do that, it would be a structural ruling Rather than, which sometimes is what you have to do in a constitutional matter, rather than pretending you're just following the the originalism. Right, and the it would be a living intent. constitution because things have changed since the Civil War, haven't they? And therefore, in the circumstances, the exigencies of the moment, you have to consider the structure of the constitution, the complexity of presidential. This is the language that they always hate. This is the language that they mock when the other justices raise this. You know what I think Roberts is going to do? He's going to give the majority opinion to one of the liberals so that they can write this and the other justices will have concurrences with all kinds of their, you know, snooty little comments. Um, but I don't think this is going to knock Trump, you know, off the ballot. I think it's pretty unlikely. Now, what's, what's striking in political and timing terms is, it's, first of all, this case, the Colorado case, is likely to be heard by the Supreme Court before the Jack Smith case. Yes. Uh, and, uh, February, you know, uh, it will be. in February. And from the perspective of John Roberts, say, um, if it is the, if it is as many legal observers think is the case, that it's likely that they will not kick Trump off and they will declare that he is not immune from prosecution. From the court's perspective, just purely as a political matter, it would be best for them to kind of do those as close together as they possibly yes. can. Cause you could get, you could get, you know, 
near unanimity on both of those things, potentially. And if so, that would be, you know, um, that would be probably how John Roberts would like to do it. The problem is they, they refuse to hear the Jack Smith appeal on an expedited basis. And then something like two days later, the Colorado ruling came down. I bet they wish they had a little time machine and could adjust that one. But I wouldn't put it past them to make the deal, um, regardless of when the decisions are made, that these justices know both cases are coming. And there is some horse trading going on, and there is some recognition that the, they do not want to go down the Bush v. Gore um, road again, um, because, of course, that um, would be one more, uh, I think, um, sign that the Supreme Court is beyond um, remedy and is just a bunch of partisan hacks. And, you know, I don't think that uh, the one thing in, in the Colorado case that would be really bad, and I'm sure the liberals at least feel this way too, is for the court to declare, well, he there was no insurrection here. It was just, you know, free speech that got out of hand right, right. or something like that. I don't think they need, they certainly don't need to do that. I would be surprised if they did do that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, again, the, the insurrection case Excuse me. The not, they're all the insurrection case. The right. um, the immunity case. They they all kind of have a lot of syllables um, and start with I. The immunity case is legally an easy one. Yes. When you think you know Gerald Ford in issuing the pardon to Nixon said, well, he's about to be prosecuted for Watergate, and that would be terrible because he would go to jail and the country would be torn by anguish. And so I'm giving him a pardon, and Nixon accepted the pardon. You know, when I, as, as you know, I worked for Bill Clinton in the White House. After he left office, he was investigated uh, by a federal prosecutor for pardons he gave as president. Uh, in the last days of his presidency, he was cleared, but it was and it was an investigation. Nobody said, oh, he's immune. You know, selling pardons is, is immune. You know, you're not allowed to prosecute something like that. Um, and and there's just so much evidence throughout history that we don't want a king and that that's a very basic thing here. So that one could be done, you know, quick and easy peasy. And the, the key thing is that the trial happened fast because the country needs it to happen fast. Absolutely. And by the way, on the immunity issue, Trump's own lawyer in the second impeachment said, well, of course, he could be prosecuted instead after, because by the time they got around to that, he wasn't president anymore. So then he couldn't be impeached because he wasn't president. Now he can't be prosecuted because he was president. And their answer is he can never be prosecuted because he's some kind of king. Um, And that isn't going to go down well. As Mel Brooks said in History of the World, it's good to be the king. Yeah, exactly. He's not actually the king. Right. Um, But you would excuse it if you thought that's what his conception would be. And it is interesting that we're getting a lot more discussion than we were even a few months ago about kind of this totalitarian vision of the presidency. Trump said it when he was in office. The Second Amendment, uh, second uh, article is, I can do whatever I want. That's a variation of this, you know, we need immunity kind of provision. Um, As we reach the end of our time here, um, what do you say to average Americans who say, oh, he doesn't really mean it, or that's just the way he talks, he's got a big ego, What do you say to them as a warning that this should be a flashing red light for them before they decide to vote for him, either in the primary if they're a Republican or in the general election? 
I think it is long past the time when people would say they would take him seriously, but not literally. He says out loud what he means, and and uh, and we all have a form of cognitive dissonance, and many journalists do, that they feel, well, I'm not really going to cover all that nonsense. It's just going to give it attention. You have the former president of the United States saying that General Milley should be executed. You have the former president of the United States saying that he would suspend the Constitution, promising to use the Insurrection Act, which, as the Brennan Center's scholarship and others have have demonstrated, there are far too few limits on how the Insurrection Act can be used to call out the troops on protesters. He said he would use it on the first day. And think about the Women's March or other protests like, like that um, after he was inaugurated. Um, and on and on and on. He's being, because he's been off Twitter, we haven't noticed that he's, become full-on authoritarian, even fascistic, in his exile days. Um, and now, I'm afraid, he has people around him who are more savvy, more focused, more determined to actually make this stuff happen than was the case, you know, at the beginning when it was some of his first term or of his term, when it was something of a clown show. And so I think it needs to be taken very seriously. And the main reason to... Uh, the main basis for saying that is he tried to overthrow the Constitution. He tried to undo the peaceful transfer of power, which, except for the Civil War, we have had unbroken since George Washington and was one of the great gifts of American democracy to the world. It's not merely that he says he's going to do it, but that, in fact, he tried to do it before. Um, so... Uh, as you know, I, I am very much of the view that we need to take the authoritarian threat seriously. Um, I think this is not a party matter. It's not an ideological matter. It is something that Americans from all political stripes who care about our constitution and our country should care about. And, and I do think that there is a, um, there are a lot of people who are independents, who are Republicans, as well as Democrats, who have rejected, for example, the election deniers at the polls. Um, in the 2022 election, every election denier who ran to control the elections in a major swing state, mostly that's the secretary of state, sometimes it was the governor, every one of them lost. And they lost, they ran behind the other Republican candidates. There are people in Arizona who voted for Carrie Lake but thought the Secretary of State candidate was just too crazy yeah. to trust with elections. That's encouraging. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's a democracy movement out there that uh, is growing stronger and that I hope will be the story of the future of the country, uh, even if the election denier movement has been the scary story of the last few years. And if nothing else scares you, think of what it would be like to have Stephen Miller as Attorney General or Steve Bannon as head of the CIA. That's the kind of people we're talking about populating a second Trump term. It, it sounded better in the original German, as yeah, they say. Yeah, exactly, as they say. Michael, thank you so much, um, not only for joining us today, but all the work at the Brennan Center. It is a wealth of information. Anyone can go on the website and you'll find information about crime. You'll find information about bail reform, about Donald Trump, about the Constitution, about gerrymandering. It's an all-purpose 
public education in the law and um, anyone can use it. So thank you again for coming and we'll hope to have you back, uh, hopefully when after Donald Trump is convicted. I, I'd be delighted. And Jen, thank you for all you do to educate us and uh, in real and, and guide our thinking and make us think in real time. It's hard and we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. And that was Michael Waldman. Wow, that was a lot of fun for us legal nerds um, talking about court reform and talking about Donald Trump. And on the court reform side of things, I do agree that this Supreme Court is really treading on thin ice. They have so abused the trust and they have so really frittered away their stature in the eyes of the American public that I think even they must realize that they need to walk very carefully through the Trump minefield. And that means not being the ones who spare him from prosecution, but not necessarily being the ones that take him off the ballot. And that was sort of the compromise, if you will, or the dual decisions that Michael was talking about. Let him on the ballot, let people make the decision. But before that, we should have a prompt trial on his crimes, on his alleged crimes. And the best possible place to have those would be in Washington, D.C., on the very issue that goes to the heart of his betrayal of American democracy, the events that happened on January 6th. Now, it's not to say the other trials aren't important. Uh, He arguably falsified business records in New York as part of a scheme to defraud the voters in the 2016 election, in other words, to avoid detection as a creep who um, was paying hush money to a porn star. And the Georgia case is under state law, but very important, highlighting that aspect of the coup. And of course, his taking of top secret documents um, from Mar-a-Lago without uh, proper authorization is also a critical matter. You don't want presidents doing that. But when you come right down to it, his central sin was his betrayal of democracy and his notion that a president like him can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and doesn't have to leave office when the people say. And that is a direct assault on our constitutional system. That's a repudiation of the entire rationale for the revolution, which was we don't want an imperial leader. We don't want a king. Donald Trump wants to be king. And Michael said it amusingly, but it's good to be king. It's good to think you can do whatever you want without any consequences. But that's not our American system. So we need to hope that the courts move expeditiously and um, with a full comprehension of the consequences of their actions and that we do get a trial on the merits before November of this year. So if you like this program and you like our other programs, please tell your friends. They can get Jen Rubin's Green Room on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.